Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds on May 31st and June 1st hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Back with more Soundside on KUOW, I'm Libby Dankman. Puget Sound Mushroom Clubs are proud to be some of the biggest in the country. That's right, I said mushroom clubs. Our rainy climate helps a wide variety of the fungi thrive in the wild, and the enthusiasts who collect them help the knowledge of fungi spread, kind of like spores in your fridge's leftovers. Okay, maybe every form of fungi isn't universally adored, but I mean, who doesn't love a good mushroom? Producer Alec Cowan, that's who. We sent him out on an excursion with some amateur mycologists to learn what it takes to become a good mushroom hunter. Catherine Hanser isn't afraid of a little dirt, or more importantly, little mushrooms. Everybody goes for the big showy stuff, and I'm going to need my sharp knife for this one. She's kneeling by a trailside log. It's soaked with rain, and moss dangles down either side. But what's caught her eye are a series of small, neon orange hairs. With a specialized mushroom knife, which is a curved, two-inch blade, Catherine plies into the soft wood. If you're getting something to just ID it, you do want to get some of the substrate. And in this case, not sure exactly what it is, but just from the texture of the wood, I'm going to guess it was a conifer. See, looking at these, I would have just guessed that these are like pine nettles. Well, there's some pine needles, but the what's under them usually get put in the club and coral fungi. She doesn't know what kind of mushroom this is, so she's taking a piece with her to find out. You know, look at the form. There's, there's, you know, sort of descriptions that we've come up to describe what things look like. Do they look like corals? Do they look like little clubs? Uh, you know, puffballs are kind of self-explanatory. Birds' nests are kind of self-explanatory. But they're, a lot of them are really common. We're kneeling in Lord Hill Regional Park, a remote parcel at the end of some country backroads in Monroe. It's a foraging expedition with the local Snohomish County Mycological Society. Some of the 30 or so people in our party are looking for dinner. Others are foraging for fun. As for me, mushrooms have always been somewhat of a passing interest. It's impossible to walk through the woods and not see some kind of fungi. But I'm always hesitant to get too close. And I have to imagine that comes from the same place of fear that leads me to routinely scrub my shower for mold. I mean, it's all fungi, right? Still, when I was invited to go mushroom foraging with people who actually know what they're doing, I decided to give it a try and let them handle the specimens. Have you found something? Other people are finding this too. I'm just curious about what it is. I don't Catherine gives me it. some tips for identification. Start with the cap or bulb. What color and shape is it? Is it cracked, smooth? Second, look at the gills, those partitioned frilly bits underneath. Are they thin and sharp? Are they lines or do they branch? Those house the mushroom spores. Catherine says you can also take a sample cap home to smear some spores on a sheet of white paper. Kind of like a fingerprint test for a mushroom. The keys that you will use, or even the sections if they're just using a photographic, if it's like a photo key, you still separate it out by spore print color. Odor is also an important aspect, and the most important method for telling between mushrooms that look the same but may or may not be toxic. Like your matsutakes, which you don't want to confuse with their similar-looking but poisonous counterparts, the Amanita smithiana. Those can cause kidney failure. So for reference, you want the one that smells like old gym socks. Now, the mystery fungus I'm looking at with Catherine fits your typical idea of a mushroom. It's a dark beige, rising out of the bottom of a tree with a pointed cap and skinny stem. You know, things to note are it's under hemlock. You know, it's, this one's probably a decomposer. 
what I've done with this one, I just cut the, the cap off of one that looks like it's a fairly mature specimen. You can see how it's kind of flattened out as opposed to being more um, incurved that the younger ones are. You know, I initially thought it might have been a Cortinarius, but I don't see any ring on it. Catherine packs the specimen away. She's especially careful with how she cuts and pulls mushrooms from the ground, making sure not to take too much. The bits of mushrooms we typically eat are just the reproductive parts of the fungus. The actual body is under the soil, tree, or log. The less disturbance a forager can manage, the better. On our walk, Catherine grabs a handful of mushrooms ranging from oyster-shaped tree huggers to a massive foot-tall toadstool. The pros say you can develop mushroom eyes for even the most camouflaged fungi, and I'm excited when I spot my first bushel rising from an overgrown stump. Even so, I'm nowhere near seeing them the way Catherine does. You know, when you think about mushrooms, people think of a stem and a cap, but there's such a wide range of forms. Um, you know, powdery mildews are actually amazing, but you've got to get those under the microscope to see the appendages, and they can be really, really, really gorgeous. Yeah, collecting mildew doesn't sound like my uh, preferred <laughs> oh, mushroom kind. Yeah, but it's really, you know, there, there's, um, I like them because they're cool. I like seeing what they're doing. I, you know, there's some really amazing forms. And when they're, some of the really tiny ones, you get them under a dissecting scope or under a microscope, and they're just staggeringly beautiful forms. And so that's why I, I do it. As for me, I'm coming into this world cold, and my hiker's instinct tells me the paradigm for enjoying the outdoors is to leave no trace. I mean, you know the philosophy. Taking one mushroom may feel small, but if everybody takes one mushroom, then inevitably there won't be any left for others to enjoy. And yet, like today, they're always glad to welcome more people into the mushroom ring. So how do hobbyists think about that paradox? It's a little bit like picking berries. The mycelium is still there. You're not taking the mushroom. You're basically picking an acorn or taking a, a berry. Mycelium's in the ground. You know, it's tied to the tree roots. That said, you still need to be mindful of how heavily trafficked it is. In a really heavily traveled public park, I would generally not collect. Here there's a patchwork of regulations. You really do need to familiarize yourself with where and what you're, what you're collecting. And I'm still getting caught up on that. Yeah. It's a much, much more, a much thornier issue. But at the same time, anecdotally, I've had a number of um, older members of the club who said that they've shared their foraging areas. And at this point, they said they're not finding anything there anymore because they've been overforaged. And so it's not a zero impact thing. And I don't think, you know, the, I don't think recreational foragers are the ones that are driving that. There's enough serious money in the professional foraging. You know, I, I, I think the foraging pressures are just higher here. So, you know, more of a culture of mushrooms. As much as I'm learning from Catherine and the other foragers, I still can't shake the nagging thought that if I were to try finding mushrooms myself, I'd end up a decomposing body on the forest floor. Just more food for the spores of the fungus that killed me. But then I speak with Melanie Kahn. I am. She's helping lead the newbies in the group through their first mushroom foraging experience. She's also the author of Mason Goes Mushrooming, a kid's book about how to teach foraging. Part of Melanie's foraging crusade is combating the stigma around mushrooms. You know, the fear that any and all mushrooms are poisonous. Everybody says, don't touch that. Don't touch that mushroom, as if they were all poisonous. Not true. Not, in fact, very few mushrooms are poisonous, and no mushrooms will hurt you by simply touching them. So don't touch that really means don't learn about that. 
because you think about science class, right? You dissect, you look at it under a microscope, you take apart, you learn biology, right? So mushroom education, fungi in general, has been cut off from children by this mentality that all mushrooms are bad. So the opposite is true. Mushrooms are all around us. They are doing all of the work for human beings at all times. And I'm not advocating anybody go out in the woods and start eating mushrooms randomly. I'm advocating for the opposite. I'm advocating for education around it so that you don't go out in the woods and eat a mushroom randomly, right? As I like to think of it, it's getting to know your enemy. I mean, okay, maybe that's a little dramatic. But still, after sifting through all manner of mushrooms, my fear is largely non-existent. Unfortunately, so is my expertise. So far, I've managed to successfully misidentify two different mushrooms. Since even the pros often struggle to know what they're looking at, there's got to be some kind of scout badge for that, right? But anyway, maybe the biggest lesson I've learned? If you're getting started as a mushroom hunter, go with folks who know. From the woods of Monroe, I'm Alec Cowan for Soundside. Seattle in the 90s, a tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.